Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Good to have you listening to NPR News. This hour, violent crime is rising in many cities. That's a fact. But there's more to the story, and we're going to tell that story, too. The FBI, the Council on Criminal Justice, and both large city police departments and mid-city police departments are all reporting higher rates of violent crime. In Minneapolis, the first six months of 2021, the percentage of both homicides and robberies went up by double digits. Cities like Atlanta, Memphis, St. Louis, and New York are all seeing disturbing increases as well. But you have to remember the baseline when you look at those increases, and we're going to talk about why. And you have to remember that most crime is property crime, and that's declined. More on that, too. So as our guests join us, what do you want to understand better about the crime statistics that you're hearing about? Do you live in a place where you experience the consequences of rising violent crime? And how is your community tackling that? So better understanding here this morning about the crime stats that you're hearing about and the headlines and a lot of the reporting. And if you live in a place where you experience the consequences of rising crime, how is your community tackling that? 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. You can also weigh in on Twitter It's at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Jeff Asher is with us today. He's a data analyst and co-founder of AH Datalytics, and he's with us today from New Orleans. And Jeff, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Rosanna Ander is with us, a founding executive director of the University of Chicago Crime Lab and Education Lab, and with us from New York City. And Rosanna, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Rosanna, we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about violent crime, but but I want you to um, fact check me here. Is most crime the nonviolent kind of crime? And if that's true, has it risen the same way that violent crime has? The majority of crime is the nonviolent uh, crime, but I would make the point that the violent crime is where you get the majority of the harms that that come from crime. So while it's a tiny share of crime, homicides and shootings, they have an outsized impact on communities. And we have seen a difference in trends. I think COVID really did keep people indoors. We saw a really dramatic decrease in a lot of the sort of nonviolent or lower level crimes. Um, we also need to understand that um, crime is often measured by what gets reported to the police. So it's not necessarily absolute ground truth. Um, there mm-hmm. are reasons why crime might not get reported. But, you know, I think in terms of shootings and homicides where we have seen the spikes, uh, we're fairly confident that we do get accurate information that it is uh, would be hard to believe that when someone is shot uh, and, and injured, that it doesn't get reported. And certainly when there's a homicide, we, we are very confident that the, that does get reported. Yeah, Rosanna, I, I also want to ask you, since you live and work in Chicago, you happen to be in New York today. Boy, last weekend in Chicago, 51 shootings, eight people died. Is that a spike in a high violent crime incidence this summer? Is that somewhat typical of the way violent crime has looked this summer? I'd love to have some perspective on that. Yeah, you know, I think, unfortunately, last weekend, 
was not a huge outlier by Chicago standards. We've had some really, really uh, bad weekends and bad weekdays as well. A lot of um, mass shootings. Um, and 2021 is uh, really kind of on par with and potentially even uh, further, or, you know, higher numbers than 2020. And 2020 was an extraordinarily challenging year in terms of homicides and shootings. While our citywide rate is not quite where we were in the early 90s, which is sort of the high watermark in, in recent decades, um, we are seeing it, you know, we, we may end the year with over 800 homicides, um, oh, which wow. is just a stunning number. Wow. So, Jeff, um, I mentioned that we're seeing this in large cities, but we're also seeing these increased violent crime incidences in mid-sized cities. You're in New Orleans. New Orleans has had a has also had a history of uh, high incidence of violent crime. How does it look now? And what's your let's say compared this summer to last summer? What what what's it look like? So, like most places, it doesn't look good here. Um, it we had a dramatic increase last year, like a lot of places, but our increase was a little bit different. I think in a lot of cities like Chicago and New York, there was this this huge surge that happened in June, July, um, and there was this big increase in in violence, and then and then it just to sort of slowly come back. And, and maybe not quite as big of a surge this year in New Orleans, because we don't really get cold. We don't really have a sort of summer effect of gun violence. We had a, a big increase in August, September, and then again in November, December, and we're still up. So we're, we're at 13% increase this year relative to last year, uh, on pace for about 200 murders. Last year we had 195 murders. Um, so not, not too different from last year. But in 2019, New Orleans had only 120 murders, which was the fewest murders, uh, depressingly, the fewest murders that the city has reported in wow. almost 50 years. So we're coming from a really low point to 200 murders would be reasonably normal for the immediate post-Katrina period in New Orleans. Um, it's tragic that we're getting back there, but it's equally tragic that it's not particularly unusual for us to be this high inherently. Yeah, uh, good. I, I want to talk about the baselines here because you, you've kind of alluded to that, but let's take a call first from Peter in Minneapolis. Peter, what does, what does this mean for the community that you live in and where do you live, if you can tell us? Sure. I, I live in Uptown. I've lived in um, Uptown in Minneapolis uh, for 40 of my 50 years. Uh, mm-hmm. I've gone very far in life, but I can tell you that the violence here uh, and the type of crime has changed dramatically. It's become much more violent. Um, I know four people that have been uh, you know, carjacked, uh, one severely oh beaten. Um, and, you know, we, we, you know, around in Minneapolis, you know, we've decriminalized so much, so much crime. Um, and, you know, this idea that prisons are bad and that, you know, we need to let these petty crimes go. I mean, and I, I think that, you know, we're not really looking at the overall picture. I mean, you go down to Ninth and Nicollet, uh, and you've got open drug dealing and um, open, you know, consumption of alcohol. I don't know if you're, if you're a bar or restaurant there. I don't know why you would have a liquor license because people can just drink right on the street. And I, I think that the, the, you know, we've been asked to sort of assimilate to this level of crime now. It's sort of like this is the new normal. You better get used to it. 
And I think that that's the unfortunate part about it. We're all being asked to like, just go along with this because it's what's better for a certain segment of society, which are the people that are committing the crimes that are being, you know, we, we hear these stories about people unjust, unjustly being in, in prison and that's terrible. But mm-hmm. we're also being asked to assimilate to this new level of crime because low level crime, carjackings and so forth are catch and release now and aren't really, mm-hmm. you know, real crime. And that's just not yeah, the case. I- and If if I might, Peter, yeah, you've raised a lot of really interesting points here, and I'd like to take them back to uh, our guest. Jeff, is Peter right that in many cities and mid-sized cities, we are decriminalizing uh, lower-level crime, and that may have an effect on the kind of higher-level violent crime that we're seeing? What's the analysis say? Well, so in a lot of places, we've seen decreases in arrest and criminalization of more minor offenses, but it's not something that began in 2020 or 2019. It's something that's really happened for a decade with really no inherent negative consequences in terms of, of, of increases in violent crime or increases in murder. In New Orleans, where I'm from, we had 60,000 arrests in 20, 2009 uh, and something like 50,000 arrests in 2010 to, and that lowered to about 15,000 arrests in 2019 when the city also had a historically low number of murders. New York also has had gone from you know tens or hundreds of thousands of arrests per month to significantly lower figures over the course of a decade and has also seen a decrease in its murders. So uh, I'm not sure that, y- yes, there these two things have happened, but we've got lots of evidence that these two things can, can occur independently. And mm. reducing arrests, especially for more minor offenses, and lowering incarceration populations, there's no real evidence, at least in my opinion, that that can then be something that leads to more gun violence and more murder. And if you look at what happened last summer and, and over the last fall, we had big increase in gun violence in lots of places. And New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, those places get the headlines. But the- mm, I think we've lost Jeff's uh, connection there. We'll try to reconnect with him. Rosanna, what he was saying, just to be clear here, is there can be two, two things that are true at the same time. Yes, we are trying... Uh, to lower incarceration rates. Yes, there might be a higher higher tolerance for uh, nonviolent crime. And yes, violent crime is still increasing, and they might not have anything to do with one another. Could you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, and I think Jeff raised a really important point. And, and I think it, one of the most discouraging things about the current discourse is it has become so polarized and positioned either sort of reducing the harms of the criminal justice system or reducing gun violence. And that's really a false choice. I I think what Jeff was sort of pointing out is 2020, we just saw an absolute decimation of a a safety net. It was a safety net that was not particularly robust before 2020, but to the extent that it existed, it, it really has been decimated. And so I think sort of pinning the increases that we're seeing on in gun violence 
solely on changes or, or sort of a, a reduction um, in the sort of reliance on the criminal justice system, I think conflates a, a number of things and, and tries to offer a much more simple solution to a much more complex phenomenon. That's not to say that the criminal justice system um, has no impact on, on the rates of gun violence. I think what we really need to be doing, though, is figuring out how we get the most sort of um, impact in terms of violent crime reduction with the least harms. And I think that does require looking at um, the, the safety net, the front end um, systems, and ensuring that they are more effective and robust, including things like the school system. We have young people um, who didn't have that sort of structure or positive outlets. Um, so there were, there were a bunch of things that were happening at the same time, and I, I think it's sort of an oversimplification to sort of only point to changes in the criminal justice system. Um, but I, I think we've got a lot more work to do to really get to the place where we are um, reducing gun violence and reducing the harms of the criminal justice system and not sort of um, kind of creating this false choice between one or the other. And, and that's really what we're trying to do this morning on this show when we talk about the increase in many places of violent crime a decline, I do want to note, in property crime. That's the majority of crime. But of course, as our guests say, what are we most concerned about violent crime? And you're seeing a, a significant increase in many cities, including ours, in violent crime. So what's behind it? How to understand it? And if you live in a community where you experience the consequences of rising violent crime, I'd imagine you have the same the same kind of perspective that Peter has. Living in a community where you can see this around you, where you know people that are the victims of violent crime, what kinds of questions come up out of that experience for you? How is your community tackling that? What are you concerned about when it comes to the community and the police departments and the the political infrastructure's response? to that rising violent crime? What are you looking for? What do you want to hear from the community and community leaders about it? 651 and on Twitter at Carrie NPR to Dan in Minneapolis. Hi, Dan. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, so um, I can only speak um, to Minneapolis specifically. That's where I live. Um, um, and this is a trend that I believe is um, actually happening in other cities as well. But um, I just want to push back a little bit on the idea that violent crime is increasing. If you take a look at the data in Minneapolis for the last two months, so June mm-hmm. and July of 2021, and you compare violent crime in that period, including murder, um, to the same period last year, June and July of 2020, uh, violent crime is actually down from last year in that in the past two months. So I think that's important. The reason that it's important to to mention is because there's a lot of people who are looking at the inc- the legitimate increases. And I, I want to be very clear: like I'm not. Uh, I want to make sure I'm not downplaying the the harm of violence. We we need to absolutely look for uh, solutions to the causes of violence and deal with it. It's a, it's a serious problem. So I'm not downplaying that, but mm-hmm. the reason that I think it's important to be accurate about, um, the trend that's happening right now is because there are many people who, uh, are looking at the increases of violence that happened in 2020 through 2021 and want to blame it on black lives matter, or they want to blame it on defund the police, or they say, oh, you know, Minneapolis Police Department is down X number of officers or whatever. 
But mm-hmm. I think the, the data pretty clearly indicates that the increases of violence that we saw um, happened almost exactly coinciding with the pandemic. And so I think it's important to be accurate about that, that as the pandemic seems to be, although <laughs> knock on wood, whether it's ending or not, but the pandemic seems to be abating um, at the moment and we see violent crime as well is abating at the same time. So I, I think okay. it's important to be accurate about that. No, I really appreciate the insight on that. Jeff, how do you read uh, what Dan is saying about the last couple of months and then what I said, that in a city like Minneapolis, you know, the first six months of this year, the percentage of homicides and robberies went up by double digits. So how should we understand the effect of the pandemic and where we are right now? Well, the easy answer is that it's complicated. Uh, Uh, Okay. He's, he's correct in that violent crime was up about 3% last year nationally, according to the FBI's preliminary data. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, that's basically about even. Um, murder, which is the thing that generally people are interested in, generally care about, um, because of the harm and, and, and uh, the fact that that's, that's what gets the news and that's the, the worst crime possible, uh, murder was up at least 25%. So that was a historic increase in murder with violent crime, which inclu- includes rape, robbery, and aggravated assault, down or down or up or about even last year. So we didn't see a huge change in violent crime. We did see a huge change in murder. As far as what drove it, I think that the drivers are significantly more complicated than just saying it was the pandemic. Because if you look at when murder increased, it was generally up a little bit. Uh, The FBI had it up 7% last year through the first quarter of the year. So early parts of the pandemic, it was up about 7%. And then it surged up to, through the third quarter, it was up over 22%. And through the fourth quarter, it was up 25%. So it increased significantly, but it increased significantly over the second half of the year. And okay. I think that that ties it much more than saying it was the pandemic. I think that it ties it much more to everything that happened last summer. The, uh, you know, the, the police legitimacy crisis, depolicing with, with police officers leaving the force in, in large numbers, police officers pulling back in a lot of cities, um, this, this combination, this loss of trust in the police. And what we know from the stops and search and arrest data is that starting early in the pandemic, there was historically high levels of gun carrying. We know there were historically high levels of gun sales. We have evidence that in cities that have data that, that the share of stops and arrests that were for a firearm started to skyrocket even before everything that happened last summer. So you combine the stresses of the pandemic, you combine the stresses of depolicing, the loss of of police legitimacy in a lot of places with historic levels of firearms, and you get this very complicated, uh, very big historic increase in gun violence. And so I don't think it's as simple as the pandemic will go away. And being in Louisiana, we certainly haven't gotten that yet. But uh, it, it's it's more complicated than just the pandemic will go away and all of these factors will recede because if, if police legitimacy or police manpower is really this major driver or firearm carry is this major thing that's, that's continuing to keep it going, those things are not things that are going to go away quickly and are going to take a lot of work in order to, to reduce murder back to what was already too many murders. 
Our guides for the conversation, by the way, that's Jeff Asher. He's a data analyst and co-founder of AH Datalytics and Rosanna Ander, founding executive director of the University of Chicago Crime Lab and Education Lab. Rosanna, I just ha- I have to ask, since uh, Jeff brought this up, you know, there is a there is a lot of uh, speculation, I'd say, in our community about what the effect is of police officers after the murder of George Floyd and everything that followed. Number of police officers have retired. I heard Jeff reference, you know, the the lack of legitimacy or trust, I should say, in policing and then some of the decisions that individual officers are making to leave the force. Is it is it too soon to understand what effect that is having, not just in our community, but in but in other cities on crime statistics? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly isn't helping, uh, as Jeff pointed out. Uh, but as Jeff also pointed out, I think this really is complicated. And I think the sort of desire to, to simplify and point to one thing as being the thing that is behind the increase in gun violence really um, then reduces the solution set that we can be looking at. So so I think there has been a, a really dramatic impact um, because of the murder of George Floyd and other um, uh, incidents involving police officers over the years that has really um, afraid the trust. And it wasn't that the trust was um, fantastic before that. Um, but I think that that and you can sort of imagine all kinds of uh, sort of uh, knock on uh, implications of that, whether it's sort of the police pulling back, as Jeff pointed out, but also the community not feeling comfortable sharing information with the police. Um, and even sort of, you know, there are we have better measures of police enforcement activity, whether it's arrests or stops. What we don't have good measures of, but I think is really important also as we think about how police might have an impact on crime, are positive engagements with residents. Are they getting out of their car? Are they talking to residents? Are they getting to know the young people um, on the blocks where they're patrolling? Are they getting to know business owners? I think all of that, both the enforcement um, as well as the sort of potentially kind of relationship building um, uh, by police, uh, probably uh, increased as well as the things that we can measure. And then at the same time, we know, unfortunately, that in many cities, violence begets violence, especially when there isn't um, a high enough clearance rate where the government, um, where the police and the criminal justice system is not effective at providing justice for the community. And so, you know, with this huge surge in gun violence and in many police departments, either a fixed or even reduced um, uh, capacity in the detective bureau, detectives were not able to keep up with the the sort of surge. And so many, many uh, homicides and shootings went unsolved. And often that leads to a retaliation, which then leads to retaliation. So I think um, that's that's really important to sort of recognize. And at the same time, I do think that this um, the moment that we're in is really forcing an important conversation that's long overdue around how do we also build out other strategies beyond the sort of back end of the criminal justice system to address violence and crime? What are the things that um, we could be doing more of or be doing differently that would prevent the crime from happening in the first place? How do we make sure that communities have the resources they need um, so that there is not so much of a reliance on the sort of blunt tools that the criminal justice system offers? 
You know, I'll come back to that. I've made a note of that. Uh, And we heard from Mike in St. Paul who says, I'm a retired police chief because of the climate around policing right now. Officers are not doing the proactive police work that needs to be done. Mike, I, I don't know if you're still listening or you have an opportunity to call back. I'd love to hear more from your perspective as a former chief. And if you are in law enforcement uh, or or have spent uh, much of your career in law enforcement, I think it would be interesting to hear what your assessment is of the increase in violent crime and how the way communities are being policed, perhaps before and after the murder of George Floyd is affecting that. Let me grab a call from Ryan in Minneapolis. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. Tell me what you're thinking about on this. Um, I guess my worry is that we haven't learned enough over the last 30 years. You know, we're still having this discussion around police, but we kind of need to realize the amount of resources that police are taking from our communities when we're looking at you know the underlying causes of these violent crimes, I, I imagine poverty and you know just the extreme despair of COVID has to be you know part of this discussion. And I just wonder, you know, what if Minneapolis put its 150 million dollar budget of police towards you know helping these immediate needs versus this discussion of police where historically police will just never get along with certain communities in this country. Just historically, it will not happen. Mm-hmm. That's my thinking. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, what do you hear in Ryan's concern that this is going to lead to, you know, back to some of the ways we saw communities policed 20 years ago and ideas about incarceration? I, I think it's a real concern. And I think that uh, it's it's important to absolutely learn the lesson of the last 30 or 40 years uh, before I lost the connection I was, I was talking about that uh, we have lots of evidence that we can do the, uh, you know, re- reduce incarceration, uh, reduce arrests for the minor stuff and focus on the big stuff like murder um, mm-hmm. and gun violence and reduce murder and reduce incarceration. These are things that can be carried out at the same time. And I think that that's a very important lesson that is places think about where they want to invest their resources into reducing crime. They should seriously consider that. And I do think, and this is when people talk about this surge in crime or even the surge in violent crime, I, I will actually and give a little pushback because crime was down. Violent crime was about even. We had a surge in murder, and that's a very focused, very specific problem that requires very focused, very specific solutions. And so if we focus on a crime wave, that calls for totally different solutions than if we have what we actually have, which is a very specific, very important, very tragic problem that we need to address with very targeted solutions. I'm really glad you said that because I've been mentioning the baseline. We had a pretty low baseline for some time, didn't we? Because crime had decreased pretty sharply. What what was it, Jeff, over the last decade? Give give me the, the stats yeah, we, there. We, well, so in 2014, we hit 4.4 murders per 100,000, which was, I believe, the lowest murder rate we've ever recorded nationally. We only have statistics back to 1960. Uh, Mm -hmm. We averaged somewhere in the 
14 to 15,000, sometimes a little bit more, pretty much every year from 2000 through 2014, we had a big increase or a reasonably large increase in 2015 and 2016. Um, but we went from a murder rate of about five per 100,000 to a, a little bit over six, 6.2 per 100,000 last year based on the preliminary numbers. So that's up significantly from the 4.4 per 100,000 that we had just seven years ago. But in the 90s and the early 80s, we were almost at 10 per 100,000. So still down significantly. Um, it's, it's, I don't want to undersell how, how significant the increase in murder was. Last year, we probably had the most murders in terms of the number since we had it since 1995. And it so it was a really dramatic, really historic increase, both in terms of the number of additional murders and the percent change in murders. But we are still nationally down a considerable amount from where we were in the 90s. And I know that that shouldn't make anybody inherently feel better, but I think that that context is important for, yes, for sure. remembering that this is not the worst that it has ever been. Yeah. I want to go right to the phones here to Terry. In Minneapolis, Terry, I'm really glad you could hang on. I wanted to hear what you had to say. Tell us what you're thinking about here as you walk to work. Right. Hi. I'm, I live in North Minneapolis. Thanks you for having me on. I just wanted to make a comment. When we look at violent crime increasing, say, across the, stra- the state or even the seven metro area, these murders and assaults and shootings are happening with high concentration in just a few neighborhoods. So what might be a 50% murder increase across the state becomes a 200% murder increase in specific neighborhoods. And these neighborhoods are the very ones where we're all starting to really wake up to the harm being caused, whether it's through systemic racism, whether it's through poverty, these are the very people who are suffering from these increases. I'm not even going to go into what my opinion of is behind these increases. The other thing I wanted to ask, is carjacking always being seen as a violent crime? Because obviously it is. Nobody hands over their keys, and frequently people are getting pistol whipped, threatened, I had two neighbor or I had a neighbor who was surrounded by three guys. He wouldn't get out of the car. Another neighbor chased him away. Um, mm-hmm. So I've seen these effects. And my, my guess is those guys were probably armed. The only reason they ran away is because people were paying attention and intervened. The other mm-hmm. thing is, is, is my neighborhood is suffering from a huge increase in violent death and injury from people who steal cars and drive them drunk or high or erratically. We have no traffic enforcement anymore. We just had a pedestrian that was killed nearby me. We've had two kids in a stolen car flip it and die. I think it was on Thomas a couple months ago. Um, We've had them crash into houses. These are violent crimes. And I don't even know how they're being classified, but we've watched these people who have done carjackings or car theft walk out of jail the very next day and get picked up 
a week later after they've hurt, maimed, or killed somebody or have been found again with a gun. Okay. Terry, I, I think what I've what I've heard here, and I'm going to take this back to Jeff and Rosanna. Jeff, first, what she's saying, what Terry's saying about when you look at these statistics in a city, you will find that most of this violent crime is concentrated in just a few neighborhoods. And so it's a bit, I guess, deceptive. Is that true? Yeah. So we have lots of research that shows that gun violence is uh, what criminologists refer to as sticky. Uh, it, it occurs in the same place. Uh, I think the, I can't remember, it was the New York Times or somebody had a report um, that showed this tiny fraction of blocks in a city have a significantly oversized share of shootings in that city. So uh, we know that in most places that gun violence tends to be uh, it tends to be concentrated. So when you talk about, you know, so and so city had a murder rate of twenty, you know, twenty murders per hundred thousand people, that may be way lower in certain parts of the city and significantly higher in other parts of the city. Roseanne, I've got to believe that's true for a city like Chicago too. Yeah, it, it's true for Chicago. And just to give you a couple of examples, the west side of Chicago. Um, 5% of the blocks account for over a, a third of the shootings and homicides, and it's the same uh-huh. blocks year after year uh-huh. after year. So it's hyper-concentrated within a place and then also within the people in those places. And so I, I thought Jeff's point about, you know, we, don't ha- we haven't had a crime surge. We ha- haven't even had a violence surge. We've really had a sort of uh, homicide and shooting. So gun-related um, uh, crime and violence has increased, and we really do need a precision targeted solution. Um, so we need to diagnose the challenge first and then appropriately respond. I think one other thing that's also worth putting into perspective uh, in Chicago is um, while we are citywide, not at the rate that we were uh, in the peak of the early 90s, um, where we don't have a thousand homicides, we're probably on pace to have around 800. If mm-hmm. you look in the neighborhood where the gun violence is most concentrated, those neighborhoods are now at a rate that is surpassing what it was in the early 90s. So that means that if you are a black Chicago resident, your homicide rate is higher than it was at the peak of the early 90s. So it really is a tale of at least two cities. And I think the one other thing I just want to also put into perspective um, was I, I think it's helpful to, you were sort of talking about the sort of, we were starting with a low base uh, crime rate or violent crime mm-hmm. rate um, before the surge in 2020. Um, I, I think we have become accustomed in the United States to tolerating what most other high-income countries would consider a massive crisis. So in mm-hmm. the UK, when they went from a homicide rate of 1 to 1. 1.5 per 100,000, that was a crisis. And we are you know, we have, you know, we think of five per hundred thousand homicide rate as a quote good year in the United States. And I just think that we, because of our sort of, uh, sort of gun availability and the role, the role that guns play in making our violence more lethal, we sort of accepted a sort of baseline that most other high income, high income countries would consider an absolute crisis. That's a good point. Before I come back to guns, Jeff, I I don't want to miss what Terry said about the people that live in neighborhoods where these, you know, these violent crime crimes are concentrated. 
most of those people are just trying to live and do everything that everybody else is doing, no matter what neighborhood you're in. And she mentioned the suffering of these communities. Uh, what do you see when you look at the statistics about these concentrated, this concentrated criminal activity in some neighborhoods? I mean, this just must seem like a never-ending cycle to the to the residents there. I'm sure it does. And and one of the major problems is that there are places where I think the Washington Post had a series two or three years ago where they talked about where people can murder with impunity. And mm. they, what they mean by that is that a, not only are murders concentrated in a specific geographic location, but murder clearances are also concentrated in geographic locations that are usually elsewhere. So to give an example, in New Orleans, where I am, on Bourbon Street or in the French Quarter, something like 90% of murders are going to be solved. But you go a mile and a half away to the Seventh Ward, which is a neighborhood that has a high level of gun violence, and you're talking about 10 to 15% of murders that are being solved. So not only do you have this, this substantially higher level of violence, but you're not getting inherently the right kind of policing that, that the, the people want murder solved. They don't want to be over-policed and have inherently every minor offense be right. uh, driving mass incarceration of the neighborhood. But the, the challenge here is how do you get it right where you're able to solve murders, you're able to build community trust, uh, which will help then to, in theory, reduce your gun violence there. And it's a, it's a very difficult situation, and I think that it, it's uh, something that cities and police departments in a lot of cities are going to be struggling with and are, have been struggling with. Yeah, Jeff, I saw that piece you wrote for The Times about why some police departments have high clearance rates for murders, and you had this graph that was interesting. It showed that police departments with a smaller percentage of gun murders tend to solve a higher percentage of cases. What's the conclusion about that? Well, the conclusion that I took away is is obviously uh, places like New York, where a large percentage of their murders are coming from other means, uh, have done a really good job of solving murders, whereas places that are having 80 or 90 percent of their murders that are via firearm are Mm -hmm. really struggling. And you get fewer witnesses, you get fewer physical evidence. Uh, it's, it's just a harder crime to solve, even though they're both the same crime. Um, the other takeaway from that piece is that the thing that really drives whether or not a murder gets solved is the resources dedicated to it and the gumption of the officers. And yeah. uh, I talked to a, a, a former homicide detective who talked about how diligence is the, the thing that matters most. And after two days, you probably have the same number of officers working non-fatal shootings as homicides. And then you know, two or three days passes and they're not working non-fatal shootings anymore. They're moving on to the next one. And officers may feel or detectives may feel like they've just run out of, of clues and they're not knocking on doors and it just it makes it harder to solve and so if more it it, it suggests that one way for cities and police departments to reduce murder and increase their murder clearance rates is to drive more resources into solving these types of crimes and that doesn't mean inherently hiring lots more officers but training your officers, giving them them more technology, giving them more resources, getting more officers to be good homicide detectives, and focusing on that as a strategy for violence reduction. 
Yeah, Rosanna, we should note that yesterday the governor of Illinois signed a law uh, on universal background checks on guns. I know you're working with the city of Chicago to crack down on illegal gun trafficking. What will the the signing of that law perhaps mean for for the operation you've got going with the city on this? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that guns in the United States are, are, are pretty under-regulated, so there are lots of gaps and loopholes that make it very easy for guns to move from the legal market um, to uh, illegal and uh, to the illegal market. So I think, you know, the bill that the, the governor signed, I think, is, you know, one way to try to close up one of the many loopholes. Um, I think that, you know, what is also really important is making sure that police departments are tracing every gun that they recover and really understanding as much as possible how it's moving, what are the pathways that it, uh, allow guns to move from the legal market to, uh, to crime, and, and understanding trends like guns that are moving quickly from the legal market into crimes can tell you something about potential trafficking pathways. So I think it's really important. I know it's not getting as much attention um, as it probably should, but the appointment of a permanent ATF director um, at the national level, at the federal level, is important. It's a very kind of under-resourced federal agency, and it does not have all the tools that it needs, but I, I think it's an important part of the larger um, strategy to, to reduce gun violence is to not just focus on the individual who is caught um, with the gun or who pulls the trigger. By then, it's too late. What can we mm-hmm. do to really kind of close down the sort of pathways um, that allow guns to um, ultimately end up being used in crime and, and gun violence? Call here from Michael in Minneapolis. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for waiting. What are you thinking about as you, as you listen to the conversation? Oh, hi there. Uh, thanks uh, for taking my call. I um, I just was curious, you know, um, I heard a, a community activist on the radio the other morning kind of expressing his uh, frustration in regards to uh, some of the unsolved murders and violent crime, especially in mm-hmm. the higher affected communities like in North Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, one of the, you know, there's kind of a lack of trust and cooperation in the community in terms of like, you know, detectives going out, asking questions, but also, and you know, what you guys already kind of talked about was, a lack of resources in terms of detectives and solving crimes. And I just feel like you have such a high proportion of homicides and things, all of which to me is, you know, shocking. Um, uh, and then it's only going to embolden people that are those crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and also one final thing uh, before I let you guys go is that, you know, in the city of Atlanta, I believe that they kind of, the mayor, they in, kind of increased the pay in uh, the police department, um, kind of the first time in a long time, increased staffing. And, you know, I'm just curious as if, you know, that they also hired maybe more uh, detectives to solve some of the violent crimes, because I believe that they've had kind of a decrease in crime. I'm not sure if this obviously directly correlates to that, but certainly, you know, kind of the mayor's approach here in Minneapolis, kind of a both and approach, I think really is the best thing, you know, hire the appropriate amount of staff and kind of reform and make sure that you're hiring good people. And mm-hmm. so that's about all I have to say. Yeah, Michael, um, you raised some good questions here. Rosanna, let me ask you to reflect a moment on what Uh, Michael just said and what Jeff was saying about targeting funding uh, into police departments, not just kind of a broad, we're going to hire, you know, 300 more officers, but then also this training to make sure that the officers who are investigating have the skills and the diligence to do that. Is that something that you've seen in Chicago could and does make a difference? Yeah, I 
I think that um, policing is an area where we've dramatically underinvested in the human capital, in the training and the skills that we, um, you know, it's, it's such a complicated job. And it really, um, it, you know, look at looking at what kinds of training and supervision and tools officers get. I think we, we spent a lot of time uh, focusing on the tactics and not really giving them the skills that they need to be able to do their jobs effectively. And I think that's particularly acute when it comes to the role that detectives play and making sure that they have the training, the support, the supervision, and the tools that they need. And I think there's, you know, a, a, a huge opportunity as we're taking a much closer look at policing, the role of police in our country, how they get trained, um, I think, is a place where we need to make really, really significant changes and investments, um, as well as around the accountability. So we need to train them appropriately um, and then make sure that we're holding them accountable. Um, uh, And I think that that really could improve the things like clearance rate. And I I think there's some really encouraging examples. I think people, uh, many people probably have read Jill Leovi's book um, Mm, about the LAPD detective. Um, who, who really just was a sort of example of what is possible when there is a commitment, when there are resources, um, when there's a focus of, of what can be done. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of room for improvement there uh, to, to really improve. And that will, I think, have a spillover effect on not just solving more cases, but preventing um, the gun violence from happening in the first place. Jeff, I, I have about two minutes, but I, I wanted to ask you what you think when you see some of these states like Texas basically banning the need for permits with gun possession, whether that has anything to do with the number of guns on the street and then f- the fact that they find their, their ways into the hands of criminals. Does that matter? It, it probably matters. It uh I don't know that it's inherently the most critical factor driving gun violence, but I guess my response would be that it doesn't help. And mm-hmm. if we want to get a handle on this, it's it's a step in the opposite direction. And uh, I'm not advocating for any policy or anything, but I think that it it makes it um, it certainly those those type that type of approach to gun violence, rather than actually focusing on gun violence, is, is certainly not helpful. Hey, this has been really interesting. I thank you both for the hour. Jeff Asher is a data analyst and co-founder of AH Datalytics in New Orleans. And Rosanna Ander is founding executive director of the University of Chicago Crime Lab and Education Lab in Chicago. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., I think you're going to want to listen in here as we talk about what the spread of the Delta variant is going to mean for the reopening of schools We have two physicians with expertise in pediatrics, and we will take your calls and questions. I would assume a number of you have a lot of questions about how schools can reopen. Are kids going to be masking? Are the layers of interventions going to be enough? We'll talk about all of that tomorrow at 9. Support comes from Comcast Business, helping with whatever the day brings. 
They'll handle it with gig speeds and cybersecurity solutions. Every day in business is a big day. Comcast Business will help prepare for what's next. Business.comcast.com. Powering possibilities. NPR News with Carrie Miller is produced by Kelly Gordon and Ariana Rosas. You can hear the show live at 9 a.m. weekdays on NPR News or by subscribing to the NPR News with Carrie Miller podcast. Thanks for listening.